Uh, Father, we, um, we need your word. It is light. It is life for our bones. Uh, it's um, living water that satisfies deeply. Uh, and so we ask this morning as we come under your word, as we hear it read, as Mark comes and uh, explains and proclaims the good news that is in there, and as we reflect on how we might live in its light, Lord, we pray for hearts that are soft towards you. Please uh, break down our pride. Please um, build us up in the knowledge of your grace and send us out today um, more thankful and aware of what you have done for us in Christ. Uh, and we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Corinne. Galatians 3, 1 to 22. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? if it really was in vain. So I ask, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you have heard? What you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so that you who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the, a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith, on the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to human covenant that has been duly established, so this is the case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had, referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, 
A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness that would certainly have then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. Thank you, Corin, and uh, happy Father's Day. And it's been a good Father's Day for me so far. I got breakfast in bed, that was nice. Uh, I also got given a Super Dad t-shirt, which was good. I almost wore it this morning, but then I thought you might have been distracted by the muscular abs. Uh, but anyway, uh, I decided not to. Um, of course, uh, fatherhood is a very significant theme in the Bible. And, you know, the timing hasn't quite worked out uh, because next week we look at being children of God, fatherhood of God next week. So keep that in mind. This is a... This is going to go on for two weeks, this father theme. Today, we're looking at being children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. So um, without any further ado, let me uh, lead us in prayer and we'll dive into this text. Our Father, please guide us, strengthen us, encourage us, rebuke us, and make us wise, we pray, uh, through Christ. Amen. Okay, well, I'd like to start with a quote by Hindu spiritual leader, for a change, something different. Uh, the late Dada Vaswani, he said, the best sleeping pill is a clear conscience. The best sleeping pill is a clear conscience. Uh, that is, it's not a bad point, is it? Uh, you know, we have a sense of guilt for our actions and uh, that can weigh on us and losing sleep uh, is only the beginning of the symptoms. We want to be good people, don't we? We want people to think well of us and we want to be able to think well of ourselves. So with that in mind then, perhaps today's sermon title is a little bit subversive. The problem with good works. The problem with good works. How can there be a problem with good works? Well, that's what we're going to explore today. And there are three sections to my talk. First, the folly of good works. Second, faith justifies not good works. And third, the wisdom of faith. You should have those in your outline, hopefully. Keep the Bible passage open because uh, we're going to be looking through that. So first, so first section, the folly of good works, and we're looking at the first five verses here. The message of our gospel is that God loves all people and willingly died on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God. We come to faith in Jesus by seeing what he did on the cross, acknowledging that we need forgiveness for our sins and asking to receive that. It's so simple, isn't it? Put your faith in Christ and you are counted perfectly sinless before God because of what Jesus did on your behalf on the cross. What this means, of course, is that he restores us. We don't restore ourselves. I mean, how do you think you could get God to the table for a process of reconciliation. How do you do that? I mean, where do you sit him down? And, um, you know, what are the terms of this negotiation? How are you going to structure this negotiation? I think it's ludicrous, the whole idea. Do we think 
that if we make a good effort in our lives, that somehow the infinite, eternal God of the entire universe, who's got the whole lot in his, in his mind and his hands, somehow that eternal God will be obliged to give you a pleasant afterlife. Where's the logic in that? You do a, a reasonable effort and he's, he's, an, he's obliged to give you a pleasant afterlife. That's rubbish. Nonsense. He has no such obligation. It's foolishness to think that God is obliged to reward the good person. In reality, the Bible tells us God is angry with us. The very problem is that we're actually not the good people that we often think we are. He's angry with all of us because of our sin. You can read about it in Romans chapter 1 in particular and other places. And yet having said that, yes, God is angry, but God also loves us more than we realize. And our only hope is that he loves us. He didn't curse and storm off into the next room as we might do. You know, he doesn't sulk at our sin, expecting us to fix things up or else he'll hold it over us until we do. No, what our God does is he took the first step. He has reconciled us to himself by what Jesus did at the cross. Now, a few weeks ago, we, uh, we spent some time thinking about the Thai cave rescue. You remember this from just over a year ago, the, the 12 boys and their soccer coach. Uh, remember that there was no escape, only rescue. No escape from that cave, only rescue. They couldn't get out on their own. Uh, the rescuers couldn't even teach them how to get out on their own. The only way they could get out of that cave was if the rescuers sedated them. So they're not really involved if they're sedated, are they? And then they carefully, lovingly carried them through the two and a half kilometers of dark, murky, flooded underground caves and passageways. And our situation with God is the same. Don't think that Jesus was just a teacher come to teach us how to scuba dive our way out of our human predicament. Jesus was a rescuer, a saviour. Okay, but here's the question, right? We'll get to the nub of it now. Maybe you believe that Jesus is your saviour. That's been the gospel that we've been preaching from this platform for, for a long time now. Maybe you believe you have put your faith in him, but at some point you've started to wonder if on average you're a better person than most. And this slight superiority, although you wouldn't call it that, it kind of proves to others and to yourself that you're okay with God. Things are going to be fine. You know, this question is, have you started to revert to a justification by works headspace to live as if it depends on you? Because I think many of us have, and I think most of us do that at some point continually. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 3, are you so foolish? He's not trying to be polite, is he? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you started adding a whole bunch of criteria that will make absolutely certain that you will be saved? 
maybe generous volunteering. Regular attendance at church, sincere faith, or maybe you count yourself as a good bloke, maybe you count yourself as a true friend, you're a fair's fair kind of person, you don't talk about people behind their back, you don't get angry, you don't shout at people, people aren't afraid of you. All of these are commendable ways to live. But if we think that through them we'll win or maintain God's approval, think again. Paul started off this chapter by saying, you bunch of twits, you fools, Galatians, who has bewitched you? What's going on in your heads? What's happened? And so foolishness is a theme here. And to come back to the title, the problem with good works is not the works themselves. They're great. The problem with good works is what we use them for. We use them for justifying ourselves. And we do it before ourselves. We do it in our own minds. Yep, I'm good. We do it before others. See, I'm good. And we do it before God. And this is foolish. So you might be thinking, okay, how do, we do, how do we go about this? What does it look like? How do we justify ourselves by good works? I think one of the ways that we do it most is by looking around us, looking left, looking right, and we compare ourselves with each other. Although interestingly, it's not just left and right that we do. It's actually up and down. We look up to those in the world with you know, some kind of credibility, and maybe it's popularity and we envy that popularity or maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, it's virtue, they're a really impressive person. We kind of downplay that virtue in our own minds. Uh, or we look down towards those who are not held in high esteem by the world and we think, thank God I'm not like that sinner. Sound familiar? Comes from one of Jesus' parables. And so what we do is we set up our own legal code. We define it ourselves, we use our own words, you know, we know when someone's letting the side down, don't we? When they're not pulling their weight, we know when it, you know, that's poor form. Oh, that immature person. I mean, look at our obsession with reality TV. I mean, not your obsession with reality TV, because you, you would never do that, would you? I mean, look at those silly people doing all those silly things on that. I would never act like that. If I was in that situation, I would, but I wouldn't. In fact, I'm never going to watch that TV show because it's all silly. But you know what I mean? There is this kind of this way we think um, and sort of setting up, the, sort of working out what we'll put up with, you know, what's reasonable, how we would act, where we would draw the line. And of course, none of us wants to be hypocrites either, right? Do we? And so what we work out our own code, what, what we would be able to abide by, and that then becomes the standard by which we judge others. I've never stolen anything from a shop. Have you? Confession time. Uh, but because I've never stolen anything from a shop, I feel quite comfortable critiquing people who have. Shouldn't have done that. Um, you know, sometimes you've driven your car maybe 10% over the speed limit, maybe 20, don't know, depends. Uh, depends on the situation. So then that becomes your standard for judging others. Okay, you know, 10 to 20%, that's all right. But uh, anything more than that, you're really bad. So who are we kidding? We do live under a code. It's just we set it for ourselves and we're constantly referencing ourselves and others to our code of what makes people acceptable or unacceptable. And this can become deadly dangerous. What happens if you consistently cannot keep up with your own code? 
when you admit that no amount of moving the goalposts will make you acceptable, not in his eyes, not in other people's eyes, not even in your own eyes, well, despair. It's a cycle then, and that's not good. And you know what? This is not how God wants you to live, because that's not full living. Jesus poured his blood out to liberate you from the torment, the guilt, and the self-delusion of trying to live faithfully under some kind of code. He wants to liberate you from this rat race. The gospel is based on justification by faith, not by works, not by a code. And I want to look briefly now at how Paul argues for justification by faith here in Galatians. Now, what we're doing as we dive into chapter 3 is it, we're diving into a sustained theological argument. This is kind of the central part of this letter, and there's, there's, there's quite a bit. There's a number of arguments that we'll go through in the next few weeks. The claim is justification comes by faith, so what's the evidence for that? Why would you say that? How do you argue it? Okay, so section 2, faith justifies not good works, and in this passage, there are more or less three pieces of evidence that Paul presents. First, there's the evidence of spiritual experience. Second, there's the evidence of the first gospel believer. And third is the evidence of God's unbreakable promise. So first, uh, and we're looking at the evidence of spiritual experience. Paul asks a question in verses 1 to 2 after his initial kind of, you know, what's going on? He asks a question. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? See, what they did was they believed the message of Christ crucified. And what they received as a result was the Holy Spirit. And they're very much aware of the presence of the Spirit with them. And Paul's saying, okay, this presence of God came to you because of the gospel and believing in the gospel, not because you were keeping the law. So in some ways, your experience of having the Spirit is the proof that faith is better than works. Interesting argument, isn't it? Because it happened when you believed. And then he says it again in verse 4 and 5. Uh, have you experienced, notice that word, experience, have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, you, some of you will know this does potentially open a couple of cans of worms. Um, why not? Uh, we'll be very brief, though. Um, firstly, I've got four things quickly, A, B, C, D to say about this, um, just about the question of subjective truth versus objective truth, also about the question of how and when a person receives the Spirit. A, the Spirit comes at the point of belief in the Gospel. Now that would seem to be evidence against the idea of a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, by which people go from being simple believers to being empowered believers. This text seems to work against that. Rather, receiving the Spirit should be the normal expectation of every believer. However, B, nevertheless, 
There's belief and there's belief. You can assent to the truth claims of the gospel without entrusting yourself to them. And so year after year, these truths of the gospel can, can fly past you. You can take communion after communion, listen to sermon after sermon, and they can fly past you. You can nod as they go by and not be changed. That's a tragedy. Because I think for us to have faith, you can't, you can't just be satisfied with assent to a bunch of truths. There needs to be entrusting yourself to those truths and entrusting yourself to the implications of that truth. That would, be, that would seem to me to be the kind of belief that leads to God giving us his spirit as I look at it. True belief, not mere assent. C, our understanding of miracles is often narrow. See, Paul's raised the question of miracles. We've seen all this work of the Spirit and the miracles, and um, we're thinking, well, I don't know, have I? And, uh, but I think part of that is that we're often narrow in our understanding of what miracles are. This word that's used here for miracles, dynamis, sounds like dynamo, doesn't it, or dunamis, also means works of power. Dynamis is the word for power. And it's used in a whole lot of different ways in, around the New Testament. But here's an interesting example. Paul uses it in Romans 1, verse 16, very famous verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation, for salvation, um, the dynamis of God for salvation, the miracle of God for salvation. Do you get the point? That um, now certainly the experience of the Spirit in the early church was marked by a range of extraordinary uh, signs, such as speaking in tongues and other supernatural works. So it was marked by those things. But the emphasis of the Spirit's work in the book of Acts seems to be the power and boldness of the church to speak and testify to Jesus. What, what you have is a whole bunch of lily-livered people who are running around in the gospel, no idea what they're doing, terrified, you know, denying Jesus and so on. These lily-livered people then put their lives on the line in the book of Acts time and time again. And I think it's primarily this miraculous boldness that Paul has in mind when he asks them to reflect on the experience of the Spirit and the miraculous power. God has completely changed us. Look at us. Look now compared to what we were before. Yeah, there's been some amazing supernatural works, but look at us. There's a, there's a kind of a, a big picture that we should see there. And D, under this experience question um, and the Spirit... Paul doesn't downplay subjective experience, and so neither should we. He's, you know, his whole point here is to affirm the objective truth of the gospel, but each of us will have different examples in our lives of how it made a difference. And so that's why we tell each other our testimonies. One of the things Jack was doing during the winter school was trying to teach us to understand, articulate, write down, be able to share the testimony of how God worked particularly in our lives. And that's a subjective thing. There's the objective truth. We, put it, we all put our faith in the one objective truth. And yet there is an individual outworking. What does it look like in your particular life? And whatever it is, I bet it came through you putting your faith more deeply in Jesus. Even against the odds, even at cost, rather than by you demonstrating 
to God how good you are. Belief in God connects you to God in a way uh, trying to prove yourself simply doesn't. Okay, there's a bunch of stuff we've, we've dealt with there that's across a range of things, but let's get back to the, to the points of evidence. That was the first point of evidence, that, that of spiritual experience. The second evidence of faith justifying is the evidence of the first gospel believer. And this is verses 6 to 14. The first gospel believer, according to this chapter, is... Anyone? Abraham. That's right. Interesting, isn't it? See, Paul says that in verse 8, he says that the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham in these words, all nations will be blessed through you. That's interesting, isn't it? And you know what? It's not just one isolated quote buried in one verse in Genesis. It's in chapters 12 of Genesis, 18, 22, 26. It comes back time and again. Okay, but hang on. All nations will be blessed through you. How is that the gospel? I mean, isn't the gospel about believing in Jesus, believing in Christ? Well, yes, it is. But before Jesus was on the scene, the gospel was no less about believing in God's power and desire to bless. Verse 6, Paul quotes Genesis 15 regarding Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So do you know what that means? That means that Abraham was justified by faith. Do you see that? Right from the moment that God started making promises to human beings, the question of whether you believe those promises was the question of whether you were justified or not. Because it's there in the text in Genesis that Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous, right back in Genesis. So this is not new. Being approved by God has always been through faith, through belief, not through law. It's the biblical pattern starting with Abraham and see the implications of that, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Right back in Genesis, and we've spent quite a bit of time in Genesis this year, this, uh, year haven't we? Looking at those blessings and how they point forward to us. Well, it continues. It's part of the picture of the Bible. And then um, verse 9, So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if you have faith in the gospel, you're going about your business day by day, you're a child of Abraham. You don't, may not feel connected to him, uh, but, but it's not through human descent. It's through faith, just like he had faith. Now, Jesus makes the point as well. Uh, in John 8, we looked at this a couple of similar things a couple of weeks ago, when he's talking to some Jewish opponents and he says, I know you're descended from Abraham, but you're not actually children of Abraham. Their eyes go up. What? Uh, because you're trying to kill me. Right? And they're going, how did you know this? Okay. Um, well, it's pretty obvious. But, but, um, and Jesus says, if you really were children of Abraham, then you would listen to my words. You wouldn't try to kill me. 
um, because I'm the one that you need to believe in, is what Jesus has in mind. And then uh, he tells them that they actually belong to a different father, not Abraham, that you belong to your father, the devil, Jesus says, and they don't particularly appreciate that. See, believe in Jesus. It's there in Abraham, it's there in what Paul's saying in Galatians, it's here in John 8. Believe in Jesus. There is a problem if you rely on your works, no matter what stage you are in your, in your walk. And the problem is, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's pretty serious. As it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The problem is, you want to be a law keeper, you've got to be a perfect law keeper. How are you going at the law? How are you going at being perfect at the law? You can't be a code of living person. Oh, here's my line. And break the code. You know. And it's not just hypocrisy at stake. It's the risk of, risk of being under the curse of God. You put yourself under the law of God and you say, I want to be seen as a good person. Uh, then you have to obey the law. You have to actually be a faultless p- person or else you're under God's curse. It's brutal stuff, but we've got to face it. Of course, before you think... Oh, this word curse. Hmm. A God who curses must be a God who hates. Remember what Christ did. And that's what Paul wants us to do, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, everyone cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree or a cross. This is stunning, isn't it? Not everyone gets this. But this is a life-changing verse. What it means is that at the cross there was an exchange. Okay, so Jesus, the only one ever to live perfectly under the law, and so of course he doesn't deserve this curse, he takes upon himself the curse that's on the rest of us who failed to live perfectly, and so our our flaws... A whole human race worth of flaws, rebellions, shortcomings and failures were taken onto his shoulders. He bore the curse of God in my place and we get his place. Faith justifies, not works. And thirdly and more um, briefly, the evidence of God's unbreakable promise, verses 15 to 22. In the end, faith is simply dependence on a promise made by God. Now the Bible has plenty of promises throughout some of them specific to particular times and places you look through the the prophets and you see some of that but there is one overarching promise or set of promises that are the basis for every other promise in the bible and that's this promise to abraham that all nations would be blessed through him it is a hugely significant promise if you're trying to read the bible In particular, through Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring. And now Paul gives us a grammar lesson because there's a very important grammatical point here. It's very simple that this promise uses the singular, not the plural. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person, who is Christ. 
So when Jesus comes, a descendant of Abraham, and brings God's blessing of justification, he comes as the answer to God's promises to Abraham. God fulfills his promises to Abraham through Abraham's seed, as promised. And then Paul is saying that this promise to Abraham, it's an ark over the whole Bible, and nothing else happens in the Bible that changes that, in particular the law. Verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, after the promise, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, so the law is a latecomer. And the ancient, ancient promise is not superseded or cancelled by the late coming law. It's not like your five-year-old computer that you still think is new, but there's a new um, operating system and it's kind of made redundant various things And so, because the, the company that's selling you all this stuff doesn't think your machine is new and thinks you need another new one. And so it makes the old ones redundant by giving you um, new software that doesn't work on your old machine. It's not like that that kind of makes your old machine unworkable. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's why it's not working. Um, the point is God's, God's promise is unbreakable in a way that we don't necessarily think of unbreakable. Uh, the reason is because God's word never fails. He doesn't make it redundant. Everything that he has ever said is fulfilled. Even the law is fulfilled. He doesn't make it redundant in, in, in every single sense. It's fulfilled. Nothing falls. So why then was the law introduced? You're thinking, what's all this about? Verse 19, it's introduced because of our sins, to make them obvious, and it's introduced for a time until the, the promise would be fulfilled. Does the law undermine the promise, Paul asks. Verse 21, no, the law doesn't undermine the promise. It was never intended that the law, the law could bring life and blessing. In fact, he makes the point that surely, if justification could have come through a law, he would have made one. Because his grace, which is the alternative, was so costly Surely he would have made one that would have worked, Paul says. Another way to say this is, what is the Son of God doing on the cross? Whatever he was doing, whatever he was achieving at the cross, it must have been the only way that he could have done it. Because surely if there was a simple law that we could have kept that could have justified us, surely that would have been the way. But instead God loves us. He, wants, he made a promise uh, and he brought the blessing of the promise by Christ bearing the cross for us in that incredibly horrible moment. All right, well, that's, that's been in some ways hard work, hasn't it? We've been going through some text in detail. I want to wind up with section three, the wisdom of faith. We're looking at these in contrast, in a sense, the folly of works and trying to uh, prove yourself. What about the wisdom of faith? Faith needs to bring about in us a changed value system. So, it, you know, using the operating system idea again, it needs to rewrite 
our operating system, our way of thinking, or else we just default back into using the old operating system. And the old operating system is that works righteousness. You've got to have it rewritten. American preacher and pastor Tim Keller talks about functional saviors. Functional saviors. You wonder what that is. What's a functional saviour? Uh, so Jesus is the saviour, but Keller says we also have our own saviours. They function things that function as saviours for us. Things that function for us to put our our faith in. And so, if we drill right down into our deepest motivations and values, what do you find? What what drives you? What makes you tick? Half the time we haven't got a clue. But we just act and think and talk. But he, he says that if we do, if we drill down, what tends to be common amongst people are things like these three. A desire for comfort in life. Do you want to be comfortable? A desire for approval. Do you want approval? Do you want people to think well of you? We've already said probably yes. And a desire for control. Over, maybe over people, but maybe just over your circumstances. A desire for comfort, a desire for approval, a desire for control. Now, you may not think these are your saviours. Come on. I've been a Christian for a long time. But here's the thing. If comfort or approval or control are what deep down you, you kind of feel are going to make you happy, then they are functioning as saviours for you. You're putting your faith in your saviour, just the wrong one. You will be putting your faith in them even if you don't realise it because they will be what you crave. They will be what you try to restore when you lose them. And you, so that is, we, we are wired to think that comfort and approval and control are what we need, but they are actually slave masters and they are false saviours and they will not give you the liberation that Christ will give you. See, what happens if someone gets in the way of you being comfortable? You know, it might just be cutting in on you on the road. Urgh! Why? You know, or, you know, maybe a bit more, maybe someone burns your house down and, you know, somehow they manage to invalidate your insurance as well. So now you've got nothing. You're not comfortable anymore. You're thinking, I can't believe it. I'm a bit angry. I'm hurt. How could they do that to me? That's my comfort. How am I going to live now if I can't live comfortably? What happens if someone undermines your approval? Maybe they take credit for something that you should be getting the credit for. Or maybe they criticize you in public. So what happens when that happens, when your approval is under, has, been, has been taken away and your, your, your name, your reputation... Well, then maybe you get a little bit bitter. Grr. Maybe a bit jealous. How, do, how can they do that? It's unjust. What happens if someone thwarts or resists your sense of control over things? Well, you know, maybe you're going to get anxious. I mean, how, how are things going to work now? I'm not, I'm not sure about this. And, and that anxiety grows and grows. Or, or maybe you get a bit vicious. Don't do that to me. So here's the thing, if, you, if these are the things that are driving your life, then you are always staving off a fight. They will make you sin. 
You want to stop sinning. You want to stop being bitter and jealous and, and, and hurting people and so on. Well, maybe it's because you've got the wrong functional saviors or the wrong saviors. You'll feel that you have no choice but to lash out when somebody takes away these things if they, if they really are what you, what you think are going to make you happy. But they don't save at all. All they do is they lead to distrust and they lead to self-interest and jealousy and greed and malice and harmful words, aggressive words and they lead to manipulative behaviour. How am I going to get this back? And when it's all out of control, they lead to violence. Of course, we live in a world that worships these functional saviours. That's how they tick. Take this stuff away, I'm entitled to get it back. It's my job. It's my purpose. Human society is completely twisted up in anguish over these things. We all think we're free to do whatever we like. But, you know, try taking someone's house away. Try taking their comfort away. They're not free. They're enslaved to it. We're all captives to functional saviours um, if, if we let them. Uh, they are rods for our back. So what's the solution? What, why is it any different for Christians? Does this have anything to do with justification by faith and works? <laughs> do we even realise what makes us different? Well, I think in the gospel, we have what the world needs. We have a real saviour. And we get from him, if we will trust him and put our faith deeply in him, we have from him a different core belief, a different core value, and that is that we are justified by him. We are approved of, in every sense that matters, by him, by faith in Jesus. And so we don't have anything that we have to prove because he's proven us righteous. We don't have anything that we need to protect uh, in terms of our own possessions and so on because he's given us all things. And we don't have to win anyone over because uh, we don't have to win him over because he already loves us. So I don't, die, I don't live by a code or by pouring my energy into my comfort, my affirmation or my maintaining control. Rather, I live by a fundamental truth that as a child of Abraham, I am also a child of God. If the sovereign God of the whole universe has told you that you are okay, then you are okay. You are safe. You are... You are free, and he is filling you up. And you've got to believe that. Believe the gospel in all of its implications for you. It's not just a little box. Oh, yeah, Jesus died. Believe that he is truly your saviour. I don't need to defend my own comfort because I know that one day I'll have all things. I don't need anyone's approval because I have God's approval. I don't need to control everything because God controls everything and he uses it to bring good, even when I think things are bad. <coughs> so as a Christian, you don't need to strive, you don't strive to be 
a better person. That's not how it works. What happens is you keep remembering that Je what Jesus has done for you. Do you see the difference? Strive, strive, strive. What, why? No, no, no. Remember, remember, cling hold of the truth. The truth will set you free, Jesus said. We change, our behavior will change, but we'll change from the inside out. We don't change by sort of saying, all right, now I'm going to um, I'm going to fix this and fix this and somehow it's all, going to be, it's all going to work. No, we change from the inside out because faith will make you wise. It'll help you to understand the big picture of the universe. It will equip you for life. It will mean that you can get out of the rat race. So to finish, I have a badge uh, and I can wear it when I die. And it doesn't say Mark Peterson, it says Jesus Christ. And when I stand before God on the day of reckoning, he won't see my name and say, sinner. He'll see Jesus Christ's name and he'll say, righteous, perfectly innocent person. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, so the big question is, do you have that? Do you have a badge too? Do you have one of Jesus' badges? Uh, you need one. Uh, and he'll give you one. All you need to do is ask for it. It's a metaphor, obviously. Um, he has paid for it already at the cross uh, for you to have that badge that says, you know, I have Jesus' righteousness. Uh, you just need to say, Lord, I'll, I'll have that, thanks. Uh, because if you do and if you live your life in, accord in accordance with that faith, if you live the life of faith is what I'm saying, then he will transform you in every way now and, of course, into eternity. And so will you ask for it right now with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as sinners. We come before you as those under the curse uh, in our natural state. And yet uh, we thank you for what has happened at the cross, that our great Lord and Saviour, uh, took upon him, upon his shoulders, our sin, the curse that was for us. Um, and Lord, because of that, we can stand before you innocent and justified. And we can know that all things are okay because of your extraordinary love for us, which you, are, you have poured out and continue to pour out on us. And Father, we all pray now, thank you for that badge of Jesus' righteousness. And for those of us here who haven't yet received it, um, we ask for it now. Please justify us uh, by faith. We accept that gift. We take it because it's the best thing um, that we can have. And um, through it, uh, we know that we are okay and that we can get on living the way you want us to live. And so we ask this in the mighty power of the Holy Spirit and the mighty authority of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.